G'day audiophiles, on today's show we're going to be chatting with new Big Finish author Max Koshevsky. He's going to be telling us about what's coming up and what he's already been doing. Philip and I are going to be talking about the short trips range, how we both individually feel about it uh, and how we feel overall about audiobook readings produced by Big Finish. And later on in the show we're going to be recommending what we've been listening to and Philip's actually rebelling and going to be talking about a TV show that he's recently been watching. So stick around for that. If you want to drop a comment, feel free to do so below. Or if you're listening to us, you can contact us via sirensofaudio at gmail.com or any one of our socials, which is at Audio Sirens. Love to hear from you. G'day audiophiles, this is the Sirens of Audio, the show that explores the universe of Doctor Who in the audio medium. I'm Dwayne. And I'm Philip. G'day Dwayne, g'day audiophiles. G'day Philip, it's lovely to see your smiling face and all your figures behind you once again. Yeah, I've got I've um, managed to nail in new hooks for my pictures. So I've got right. all my, my signed covers up now. Oh, okay. Excellent. Very good stuff. So if you're listening to the podcast and you want to see Philip's figures... Head over to our YouTube channel because all the podcasts are there and you'll be able to see his figures there because mm. uh, all our episodes are um, released as a video version too, don't forget. Mm. So we are going to be chatting with a new Big Finish writer today, uh, Max Koshevsky, and uh, I'm very excited about that because he's only done a couple of things with Big Finish so far, but he, from what I can see, I haven't spoken to him yet, but from what I can see from his social media commentary, he's very, very excited about what he's doing. So always lovely to talk to new Big Finish writers, isn't it, Philip? Oh, it is. It's, um, it's great that there's new writers coming out all the time, and it's been a lot of talent in the last couple of years from some of the new writers. So. Yeah, absolutely. But before we bring Max on, do you know what? No, what do we have to do, Dwayne? It's time to jump down that rabbit hole. Let's go. All right, here we are. I wanted to get your thoughts on audiobook readings from Big Finish. What? How do you go with uh, short trips and audiobook readings, Philip? Well, Dwayne, I'm not a... So I don't like them. I'm just not a huge fan, and mm. my time is limited. And I actually haven't spent a lot of time digging into the short trips. Mm. When when they first started coming out years and years ago, because they you know they recorded a few short trips, they were all they, none of them were done by the Doctor Who actors. Um, I'm trying to think. There's, a, there's one voice in particular did a little bit. He was actually quite good, but I just didn't care about them enough. And because you know. Funds are limited. I do sometimes draw the line somewhere, and the line I've kind of drawn the line at is the short trips. There was a, there was when they were coming out monthly a couple of years ago. I did actually get a number of them because there was a master one which was brilliant. There was um, a few really bizarre ones that came out and, and some very interesting takes. Um, and so I did actually get a season or two of the short trips back then. But on the whole, 
I don't get them. And I know the one. There's a box set that came out. Is it right early in the year? Yeah, short like, trips twelve. Twelve. Came I didn't out, get it. Half a dozen stories. So, yeah. So it's it's not one of the ranges I actually get. It is two. So to my shame and detriment, but I can't do everything. What about you? you? What do you think about the short trips, Twain? Well, I really love the short trips range because they're short. So if I've got half an hour, forty minutes to spare, I can throw on a short trip. And I get a complete story in that time. So I really like that. I I prefer to have some kind of Doctor Who actor connection uh, when it comes to the reading. I'm a little bit more disassociated from it when it's the, the reader is not associated with, uh, with the era. So I hear where you're coming from in that regard. Whereas the... Companion Chronicles for you are a format for something really experimental. I find the short trips are exactly the same in that regard. You can be very experimental and they've done some really interesting things with them. So, and it's always nice to get a a taste of different writers. So we've been listening to Big Finish for such a long time that we get a sense of the style of different writers. Obviously, there's variation within the writers themselves, the established writers, but when you get someone new, you'll get a really fresh, refreshing look at storytelling that potentially hasn't been done before, and you get that often within the short trips. So, um, plus short trips at the moment, I think it's the only opportunity you have to get your foot in the door with Big Finish now. So, I'll be trying again, Philip, for the how many everth year in a row that I've been trying. Um, I'll be getting my short trips... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Good luck. I think I think it's interesting that you make the call. I think part of the reason why I'm not so keen on short trips is I've been burnt a few times. Right. So because they because they put a lot of new different writers in there, uh, there's been there's been there's been I've hit some and they're not for a long time, admittedly, but I just didn't like them. Yeah. So I think having been burnt a few times, that sort of turned me off. But then, then what do you mean really, by burnt? Just the bad stories. <laughs> they, uh, they didn't we, do it for you. No, they did for me. I mean, okay. they, they, they've been great. There have been some great ones. The Jiffy the Beavers, mm. I'm the Master One, what mm. it was called. I mean, that was brilliant. Um, and so there was Jacob a. Jacob Dudman, Regeneration Impossible. Regeneration, yes. Standard. That was another really good one. So there was, a, there was a year or two there which was really excellent. I'm sure there was someone who took over the short trips. I forget who it was. Um, was it? I think it might have been Ian Atkins. Yes. I did think it for Ian, a while? Yeah, and so he did. Hmm. He did go very experimental and brought in lots of Doctor Who actors and and things. But yeah, I guess I'm, my head is still in the original ones that came out years and years ago. Just reading, right. and they're just reading out of the books. Yes, and, and I just remember it just wasn't. Yeah, it's, it's it's as I said, it's it's a bit like ordering fish at a restaurant. I never order fish when I'm out. I love fish, and whenever it comes, I enjoy it. But I have this mind block. Whenever I see a menu, I just can't order fish. And for gotcha. me, short short trips are just the fish. Okay. You still love it, but you've got a mental block. I've got a mental block. And I I keep forgetting why I don't like it. And then I I listen to one, I go, oh, I really enjoyed that. But I just don't get them. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's all right. Each to their own. There is is still a place for the short trips. As I said, um, it's it's a way to get uh, your foot in the door. And I suspect Max was one of the ones that um, actually applied for the Paul Sprague opportunity. At some stage, I, I think he did. He hasn't had one published under that opportunity, but sometimes well, he can't those. Now. That's right. He can't. You you cannot be a published big Finnish author and and apply for it. But sometimes they'll take some of the shortlist and um, they'll develop the stories um, for other ranges, uh, particularly the Eleventh Doctor Chronicles. 
Um, that was that was a good one for, and and even some of the Benice Summerfield right box sets have been new writers as well, which I found. Do you remember that set Benice Summerfield lost in translation? That was really cool. That was a lot of new writers there. So yeah, there's um, a whole box set. It was great. Yeah, I think it's great for for a new writers pool. So anyway, that's good. It's nice to get your thoughts on that, Philip. Let's crawl up out of the rabbit hole. And since you haven't heard it, let's throw in a trailer for Short Trips 12. And we'll be back in a moment with Max Kashevsky. From Big Finish Productions, Doctor Who, Short Trips, Volume 12, Salvage. Can you hear me now? It said, with a voice not much older than hers. Is this salvage? Please, I need your help. You know there's a string in my back, and if you pull it, it says, Doctor... Where are you going? We are going to the front of the train to introduce whoever's driving this thing to a slightly less pointless hobby, like competitive knitting or brand management. Because someone's steering a glorified metal tube through time and space, and I'd like to know why. AWOL. Doctor, I've already wasted a great deal of time. Ah, yes. Yes. Ah, that reminds me. I was curious as to how long it would take you to find me. What are you driving at, Brigadier? What I'm driving at is perhaps it was foolish of me to place so much in the hands of such a butterfingered chap as you. My fault, really. I'm sorry to have troubled you. Now just wait a moment. The Three Flames. The voice was loud and abrasive, even over the grinding alarm. You need to get out of the ship. Do not use the door. Outside the broken viewer stood a humanoid figure with a mad spiral of silver hair. He waved his gangly arms in panic. Hey, didn't you hear me? Because there's no time to waste and this is the quickest and remarkably safest route. We are on a schedule here. But why? What schedule are you keeping? And why would we have any part in it? Identity check. We're in the middle of one of the greatest engineering feats in the galaxy, said the doctor. The Colossus River Diversion. I don't see any river. That's because it hasn't been diverted yet. A stone whacked the alien in the face, causing it to stagger backwards with a squeal of pain. (laughs) Oi! bellowed the doctor. He strode towards the humans. For an instant, they hesitated. Then seeing the fury in his face, scattered. Table for two, dinner for one. I'd walked past the building many times before and not once noticed the tinted black windows or the big, tacky neon sign that read Restaurante del Cosmo. I tried to get to my feet. The pain intensified, and I slumped back into my seat. The darkness crept closer, erasing the restaurant. I forced my head up, desperate to see if anyone outside had noticed. The window was gone. The Galois group. We emerged in near blackness. The doctor flailed forward, put his hand on a rafter thick with cobwebs, then cracked the back of his head on a slanted roof as he tried to waft them away. Gah! I mean, aha! We're in an attic. Only it's easy to say you understand. But just because you said it doesn't mean you mean it. And just because you meant it doesn't mean it's true. Sometimes you can't understand a thing till you experience it for yourself. Big Finish, for the love of stories. This is Geoffrey Beavers, and you will obey me. You will listen to the Sirens of Audio.
Well, it's great to have with us a, a reasonably new Big Finish writer, Max Koshevsky. How are you? Doing well, thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for thanks for joining us. Tell us about how you became a Doctor Who fan in the first place, because you're not you're not from uh, England originally. No, yeah. So um, I'm from Florida, um, and I actually got into uh, Doctor Who because of my mom, because she was uh, somebody who in the you know, late 70s, early 80s, sort of classic American fan of that generation, watching stuff on PBS late at night, um, you know, the way they would kind of do these weird sort of scattered orders of episodes. So you do like the Brain of Morbius part three, and then they'd show like the Android Invasion part one or something, you know, they'd skip around and kind of um, do all of that. But she somehow still uh, ended up liking it. Um, And then when the show came back in uh, 2005, uh, you know, she happened to see it was on uh, the sci-fi channel in America back before it was spelled in that weird S-Y-F-Y way. Um, And she got me into it. Um, I still remember like my first episode was um, Parting of the Ways and seeing uh, the bit where the Daleks descend on Satellite 5 and thinking, this looks absolutely ridiculous. And then I fell in love with it because of that, you know, like just seeing the sort of nonsensical, screamy robots on, you know, doing the sort of grim, dark space station thing. The whole contrast of that was just like, Oh wow, you know, this is a show that can kind of do anything. So that's how I got into it. What what do you think? So it was before Matt Smith then, but what do you think appealed to appeals to your mum about uh British entertainment? Yeah, because she's obsessed with this kind of stuff. Um, it might just be quality. Um, I think a lot of American stuff, especially like, you know, up until recently in the sort of golden age of streaming, quote unquote, uh, you know, British stuff tends to 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 be a lot better written. Um but I don't know. I think it's the kind of um, the way that British stuff and Doctor Who in particular can kind of take tropes and sort of existing ideas and be really flexible about doing them in new ways. Like um, if you have a new crime drama in Britain, for instance, um, it tends to be that the really good ones all have to kind of do something really new and innovative. You know, you have to have some new angle on it, even say like Broadchurch or something like Chibnall doing that Um had to have a, a very different sort of Scandi vibe to it that made it really distinct, you know? Um, and in America, a lot of TV is, it is just a bit churned out. Um, that's my hot take. Um, and, you know, a lot of it is like, you know, you do a crime drama, it can be basically the same as every other crime drama. Um, so yeah, I think there's, there is something sort of um, magical about something like Doctor Who that, you know, there's a reason why it crosses generations. Um and actually, my my mom and I together uh, this past February, we went to uh, Gallifrey One for the first time for the both of us. Um, and that was a kind of, you know, surreal, fun experience, because I don't think most people go to conventions with, you know, their parents, even though a lot of people have parents who are into this stuff, um, you know, or, or you know, if you grew up with the show in like the, the 60s or 70s, you probably have kids or grandkids who are into this stuff. So it's, you know, wild. Um, but yeah, so I... I guess that's my long-winded answer to why is uh, British TV good? Because it's just good. I don't know. And why the eleventh Doctor for you? You 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 discovered Doctor Who before then, but why the eleventh Doctor? Why does he resonate with you? Yeah, because um, I think um, I was definitely into it, like emphatically during the David Tennant era. You know, because um, everybody talks about how uh, Doctor Who broke America. Um, during the Matt Smith years, right? Like Moffat's really the first one who made it more of an international show. Um, and then people got on to, you know, the earlier Russ T. Davies era um, along with that. 
Um, but I was into it right at the point when absolutely nobody idea, uh, nobody at my school had any idea what I was going on about. You know, I would go to school wearing Doctor Who t-shirts and stuff like that, you know, when there wasn't any sort of like presence at Comic-Con or whatever. Um, but a, when the Matt Smith era came around, you know, I, I have kind of mixed opinions on some of it. You know, I think like, like a lot of people, I think there's some missteps in Series 7, for instance. Um, but there's something so ridiculously um, open in in just sort of, I don't know, just inventive about um, the Moffat uh, eras. Uh, so the Matt Smith and Peter Capaldi eras to me are really sort of when Doctor Who kind of, you know, hits its stride in some ways. I mean, arguably you could say that, that I can see people who think the RTD era, which I also grew up with and loved, um, is possibly better. But there's something to me that really resonates about um, those eras. And with Matt Smith's Doctor, especially the fact that he's just so, I don't know, like it's the sort of scatterbrainness, it's the way that he's written, um, the, the way that, I mean, it's, he, you know, it's like how Matt Smith is very similar to other doctors in lots of ways that people have pointed out all the time. You know, he's, he's especially in series five, really similar to uh, Peter Davison in uh, a lot of his era. He's very similar to Troughton, who he obviously consciously based his uh, performance on, but Matt Smith does it in this really distinctive way that it's, it's like, um, I think more than any other doctor, you can kind of hear his patter in your head. You know, you can kind of pick anything in the world. You go to the supermarket and imagine what would Matt Smith's doctor do in a supermarket? You know, what would he, what sort of stuff would he pick up? What kind of equips would he have? Um, and that is something I think that makes him just incredibly fun and, and especially fun to write, which I've done sort of now. Um, so yeah. You're not in the States now. How did you end up over in the UK? So um, I went over uh, to the UK uh, 10 years ago um, for the best possible reason, which is to get BBC One um, and not have to wait like three hours or five hours to uh, watch stuff on BBC America. Um, but I, I went over for, for uni, um, for undergrad, um, just because, I mean, weirdly, it's like the classic American thing of how... Uh, you know, the American tuition is like twice that of even like the international fees in uh, the UK. So for me, it was kind of like a bargain deal. And also um, I went to St. Andrews, which is an amazing uni. Um, and I've, and I mean, I, I always loved Britain mostly just because of the TV and stuff. I was definitely like a classic sort of Anglophile, but um, I've lived over here so long now that it's, uh, you know, a really, you love it in a really different way when it's not through the medium of TV and stuff, but it's, uh, it's living here now is it's just become my home at this point. Um, and which, you know, which is really great for being a Doctor Who fan, because there's a lot more stuff to do if you live in like the London area than if you live in uh, the suburbs of Florida. Do you think you're there to style? Um, well, we have this weird situation where my partner is, um, a Brit who loves America more and I'm an American who loves Britain more. So we'll see how that plays out. It's perfect. Might end up. Yeah. <laughs> we might end up like on a boat in the Atlantic ocean, but we'll figure it out. A lot of, a lot of writers start writing because they're the books they read. Others are more passionate because of television they see. So it sounds like for you, television has been your impetus to start writing. Um, so where, 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 where did your writing come from? When did you start writing? And what sort of things did you like to write originally? 
Yeah, I was um, a classic kind of um, teenager who dreamed of being a novelist and wanted to write really rubbish books. Um, like I, I have like a terrible first draft of a novel from when I was like 13 that um, is never going to see the light of day, you know, things like that. Um, but I think for a long time, I never really considered uh, writing as a serious uh, thing I could actually do. Or I think I was in, maybe in some ways like a little um, kind of felt like I, I needed to to grow up a little before I could. Like I, I kind of felt like, um, you know, I didn't really want to be like an 18 year old novelist. I kind of felt like, well, you know, you need to have a little life experience um, first. Um, but it's really doing some of this uh, stuff for a big finish that's finally gotten me to go, you know, hang on, I actually just need to put some words on the page and start you know, doing things. If I ever want to try writing, you have, you have to at some point actually write. Um, and that's been massively life-changing over the past few years, but yeah, I'm, um, cause I'm in this weird position now where I'm, I'm finishing up a PhD, um, in politics and I'm not hundred percent sure whether to pursue writing more or academia more, but you know, my, my heart is definitely much more in the writing space. Um, you know, I just, and anything that you write is just something that feels so much more like, uh, I don't know, it, it's it's something very personal and precious in a way that like writing an academic article to me is like, even if it's the greatest academic article in the world and everybody reads it, it, it doesn't feel the same to me. And I think that's probably an indicator. I was uh, inspired to reach out to you from a, from a tweet that I saw that you made in relation to this year's Paul Sprague writing opportunity. And you were you were singing its praises because of the way it, it it inspires new writers and brings writers together, even creates friendships. Um, but you're not on the list of Paul Sprague winners. How did you come to be writing for Big Finish? Yeah, so I think it was um, Ian Atkins who started the Paul Sprague competition, right? Um, I don't think that was his predecessor. Um, and he basically reading through all these entries um i think kept finding ones that you know wouldn't win but sometimes he would he would look at these and go you know i, I would still be great to make these um so i was one of those i didn't I, I entered in the year that um uh landbound one um by selim ulug who's it's a an amazing story um and i also wrote a third doctor entry um and it didn't win and I think it was also I, because of the content of it. It's, you know, it's about um, Joe Grant dealing with um, a dying father. I, I think um, I think Selim's was probably the better entry, but I also think even if um, anyone had wanted to pick mine over it, um, I don't think it would have been the smart choice, actually, because uh, you'd have then, for the rest of the competition, gotten people entering in tragic, you know, heartbreaking things like that. And it's um, it, it's right that that uh, competition does what it does, which is every year it picks a very different kind of story, actually, um, even though there's some commonalities to it. Um, like the fact that there's always a there's almost always a like, you know, person who meets the doctor and, you know, has their life changed. But that's just Doctor Who stories. Um, yeah. So I was um, my story still life was uh, picked not to be the winner, but to be one of these subscriber short trips, um, which has now become those um, interludes. So it's, you know, bonuses if you buy um, the main range stories from back then. Um, and it was such an amazing opportunity. Um, and it's, which is a very strange thing because it's um, even now it's, it's sort of hard to even access those, you know, um, it's hard to buy those stories. Um, but 
just being able to actually make something that has the Doctor Who theme on it is, um, you know, like, I, I don't think there's anything I'm more proud of in my life than that uh, short trip, the first one I wrote, um, which, you know, probably only a handful of people have actually heard, but it just, it means a whole lot to me, so. The last few years came pouring out all at once. She told him about her unit training, how she'd passed escapology by the skin of her teeth, never mind safe-cracking. She told him about meeting the Doctor, about things from other worlds, Daleks, demons, aliens that looked like policemen and puppets, monsters from the sea, and ships that fell from the sky. She told him everything, absolutely everything, except for what she hadn't told the Doctor either. In her pocket, Joe ran her fingers over the smooth corners of the small device she'd kept secret from everyone. And this, well, it's the Doctor's time machine. It goes anywhere, or at least it will once he's got it working again. Oh, <laughs> a time machine. Silly me. I thought it was some sort of tool shed. It's called the TARDIS, a voice boomed. It stands for tools arranged rather delicately in shed. He grinned and reached out a hand. How'd you do? I'm the doctor. I've heard a lot about you, Terence. Only good things, of course. But in the doctor's eyes, he could see the only fact this stranger knew about his life was the one thing anyone ever cared about now. It's Terry, actually, and yes, sir. You wouldn't believe the stories Joe's been telling me about you. They're not stories, Joe cried out. Yes, I'm afraid it's all quite true, the doctor said. Every word. Oh, yes. <laughs> and I suppose the fairies Joe used to chase round the garden are real, too. Out of nonsense, old chap. Fairies live in houses. Yeah, which main range story was that attached to? Um, an alien werewolf in London. The the mags, uh, you know, where they brought mags from Gal uh, uh, greatest yep. on the galaxy back, um, which is really great. Hugely underrated, actually. Because we were just talking about short trips earlier um, before you came on. And yeah, short trips are something that sometimes we skip over. And uh, that was one of the ones I've skipped over. So I'm glad you said it because it doesn't come up under the, um, when you search for your name, unless you were writing still under Max Curtis at the time. Um, I was, yeah. But it still doesn't come up. Or does it come up under Max Curtis? Probably does. But um, yeah, so I didn't, I didn't see it. And sometimes with the way it's indexed, it's hard to come across. So I'll definitely have to go back and check that one out too, because uh, you're so proud of it. So tell us, ex describe to us what it's like as a writer hearing your story come to life on audio, even, even as a short trip. It's really strange because, um, especially as a short trip, it's a really different format to any other thing. Um, the short trips, they're kind of like audiobooks. They're kind of like more full cast dramas in some ways. Um, what makes them different from anything else, I think, is the fact that they are written for audio, despite being short stories. Um, and that's a very different thing from, you know, if you go on Audible or whatever, and you buy a short story collection that's read out by somebody, that's not quite the same as a short trip. And I think that was something um, for the two ones I've written. You really have to wrap your head around the fact that you're not writing a normal short story. You know, if you... Um, read a normal short story to a kid or something. It, it, the rhythms are very different um, because they're designed for your eyes, not for your ears, really. So um, the weird thing about hearing it come alive is um, 
the moments where it feels like the actors kind of get that, that, you know, it, it, it rings in a way that is like, they got the rhythms of the dialogue. They got the rhythms of the, especially the prose. Cause I think prose can be something that's really difficult um, to actually write out, especially with Dr. Who stuff. Um, so trying, you know, one of the things I try to do in, every time I've written uh, a short trip is trying to get those prose rhythms, for instance, um, to be slightly less um, stodgy than they might've been otherwise, because the stories I've written have a lot of complex um, things going on, a lot of things that need explaining, but you don't want it to just be, you know, you, the writer going, all right, sit down. Let me just explain what's going on. This is what's happening here. These are the characters. Look, just, this is how it works. This is the techno babble. Um, so trying to write that in a way that's actually um, like palatable for the listener is really difficult. Um, More story, less info dump. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. Or how to make info dump into story is a real, that's the sort of, I think the trick that makes a great uh, Doctor Who story. Um, and yeah, and like hearing for the first time, um, the, the, that first one's still life. I mean, I literally, it was very egotistical in some ways, but like, I literally listened to it like 50 times in a row, just cause I was kind of like in shock that I was, um, cause I think I'd, I'd written it. It took a while for it to come out and I kind of went, oh wait, this isn't, this isn't terrible. Like all the bits that I kind of thought uh, were a bit like cobbled together. Um, absolutely amazing. Uh, hearing it actually you know, into something like a real Doctor Who story is incredible, yeah. And who read that one? Um, it was Stephen Critchlow, of course, yeah. Oh, Sorry, I don't know why I've forgotten that. But they, nice. they, yeah, the dearly departed Stephen Critchlow, um, which I didn't get to meet him because I didn't get to go to the recording. Um, yep. I don't know why that dropped out of my brain. But yeah, no, he, because he is amazing. If you ever, he mostly did the sort of subscriber short trips, but yes. um, his stuff is incredible. And he does the Doctor's voices to a T it's amazing. Yeah. Um, fantastic. Yeah. He's fantastic. And you've recently had released a eighth doctor story in the, sh in the last short trips box set volume 12 that was called salvage. Um, tell us about the inspiration for that story. Where did that come from? A lot of it came from, um, Alfie Shaw, the producer, um, who's, uh, just left off with that box set. Um, so he sent me a few years ago, uh, sort of right before the pandemic, a really, really incredibly difficult uh, pitch. Uh, the hardest sentence I've ever read, which was basically, um, and this is not really a spoiler for the story, but you know, it tells you what the story is about um, if you haven't heard it. Uh, but he said, can you write a story about refugees? Caveat, the doctor can't just solve a refugee crisis like it's easy. Um, and that was incredibly hard because it's an incredible, it's, it's something that um, matters a lot to me for a lot of reasons. Um, but it's something that is really difficult to actually uh, put out there. Um, Cause Alfie and I had talked about how um, I think we both thought that, you know, Dr. Who can stand to be political in ways that aren't sort of pat and um, you know, just sort of, like preachy is the wrong word because I don't really buy that uh, stories preaching about things is bad. Um, but, you know, we we thought that there's a kind of, there can be really interesting ways to tell stories about politics. So what happened was um, I sent in a pitch, you know, outline for this. It got approved and everything actually. It went right through the whole system. It was basically all we were waiting on was um, 
time for the uh, for Alfie to really get it together. And before I even started the first draft, I actually sort of read through it again and went, you know, this doesn't really work. Um, it, it wasn't terrible, but I think it was because it was such a fraught issue. What I'd kind of done was I made um, space refugee camp and tried to make it in that vein as as great as possible, some good images and some great characters and stuff like that. Um, but there was something about it that really felt sort of pat to me and I couldn't get it out of my head that I, it, it was just a story that didn't feel real. Um, I think part of that was I had a kind of refugee character who was a very much a kind of lame stand in where I could just put, put in their, their mouth, um, all the things that you'd want to say about, um, how horrific it is to be a refugee, but it, it felt very much like it was something being written by somebody who hasn't, you know, in like, which is the truth that I haven't had these experiences. Um, I've never, you know, been in those situations. I'm, you know, and, and like most people listening to it, I'm incredibly privileged. And, you know, from that perspective, and like, you know, there's a danger with those kinds of stories that you tell them for the benefit of people who can can feel a little bit better about themselves to listen to a story that says, you know, refugee crises are bad, and then they can just kind of sh shelve that away. Um, so I went to Alfie and said, all that, you know, not really working actually as well as I'd like. Can I kind of repitch a slightly different version of this? Um, even though it sounded weird, because what I pitched him was basically a space train, which sounds like a completely different thing from a refugee crisis. Um, but we talked it over and he really loved it and we threw it together. And that's what Salvage became, which was... Um, a very different kind of story, but one that I think really talks about the issues that we wanted to talk about um, in a much, much better way, to be honest. And Philip knows this, but I always struggle with the time war. Uh, I find it very, mm. very confusing at times. Um, so how did, how did you go with uh, fitting this story into the time war? Yeah. Um, Alfie and I both, I think, wanted it to be different than other Time War stories because um, I actually quite like um, the Time War box sets and stuff that Big Finish have put out. I think what, what makes them different is, you know, you could just do Doctor Who, but grim dark. Um, but what I like about it is um, I think it was Nick Briggs's idea to, to do most of them more as like uh, genre riffs on, on war movies and things like that, um, which I think elevates them really. Um, you know, it's, it's much more interesting to have... Uh, you know, Doctor Who does Das Boot or something. Like that's something you can kind of do with a Time War story that makes it interesting. Um, but I think we wanted to tell something that was a little more um, about the fringes of the Time War. I think in some ways that's um, a weirdly underexplored angle for it um, and trying to make it very, very character-based. Um, so when I was going through this sort of, the idea that actually became Salvage, um, the thing that really stuck with me was it really has to be about bliss um, because from the start, she was going to be the companion. Um, and she, you know, if, if people haven't heard those uh, stories, um, you know, she's kind of from an abortive timeline that gets rewritten in the time war. And um, so she's essentially, um, you know, if not for the doctor, she would be a kind of temporal refugee in some ways. So she's kind of cut off from this uh, home that she can't ever get back to. Um, and going towards a sort of uncertain future. And I kind of realized, you know, the story has to be about that. Um, and it makes much more sense, I think, to ground the story in, you know, a companion that we 
may already know, or at least, you know, comes from like this, this right, you know, as a character comes from a background that we can kind of grasp onto more rather than my initial idea of, like I said, you know, throwing in some sort of random, you know, refugee character of the week who has their life changed by the doctor meeting them for five seconds. Um, that made it so much more um, alive, I think. Often our stories are slightly autobiographical. So is there any of you or your history that's part of it? A little bit. Um, I think, so my um, dad's side of my family um, came from uh, Ukraine a hundred years ago um, or more, um, which is where I, I, you know, recently sort of changed my name from uh, Curtis to Kashevsky, And that's uh, from that side of the family. Um, so, you know, it was a very different kind of experience than other kinds of um, refugees uh, nowadays, for instance. Um, and that was part of why I think um, I wanted to avoid the temptation of this story of making it about any one particular uh, kind of refugee crisis, because they come in all sorts of different forms um, and people have very different experiences. So, it, you know, I, I, I don't want to make it sound like, um, you know, I came at this from an incredibly uh, autobiographical perspective, because it's not an experience that I think I really can say I shared, but it's something that I think matters to me a lot, which is the idea that, you know, my family left from uh, pogroms in what was in Russia and, um, you know, made a life for themselves and did that classic kind of American immigrant experience thing. Um, like my, uh, my granddad worked in uh, his dad's uh, ice cream shop in Brooklyn um, for years. And it was, uh, it was the Bronx actually. And um, they, you know, they, they made a life for themselves despite having come from this horrible background. And th so to me, it's, you know, anytime I see uh, people um, demonizing refugees, it, it does feel a little bit personal um, because it, it's just the sense that, you know, that there is some sort of difference between um, anybody who isn't a refugee and anybody who is. Um, I think it's just so fundamentally like, I don't know, just ridiculous. Like, I, I think people just don't have any sense of what it's like to be another kind of person. Um, and and that's something that Doctor Who can do really well, you know, meeting other kinds of people, exploring different places. Um, that's the magic of it. So I think it, there's a kind of it was a kind of perfect opportunity for for us to do a story about something that you normally feel like you can't do with Doctor Who, like talking about something real and desperate and political. But actually, when you actually do it, it works and you can actually tell those stories in interesting ways. I mean, you grew up in a state in America, which is currently taking a particular side on refugees and migration, which is very much against what you're talking about. Um, what sort of influence does that have in terms of, and, and how do you reconcile your whole family background and growing up experiences with, with what's currently happening? Yeah, I mean, uh, the current government in Florida is against basically anything good, you know, <laughs> they'd be against ice cream at this point. Um, they're, you know, um, I think, I think a lot of, I mean, growing up in, in Florida, um, the main thing that I, I always have taken away from it is just that, you know, um, I guess the obvious thing that like diversity and difference are a strength. I grew up with so many different kinds of people um, from all different kinds of economic backgrounds, geographical backgrounds. Um, and, you know, 
um, living in Britain now, I think you get a lot less of that. Um, it is a much more um, homogenous culture in a lot of ways. And, you know, I, I just think that the idea that anybody, you know, that the, the idea that difference is such a big difference, um, that it's a fundamental difference in what it means to be a different kind of person. Um, it's ridiculous. I mean, in, in Florida, it's just a kind of politics of cruelty. You know, it's, um, it's not even something that I think a lot of people, you know, if you actually sat them down and talked about how much X policy or Y policy hurts people, you know, they might not even buy it, but it's, it's the sense in everything that they do when they, they attack, um, you know, trans people or drag queens or, um, you know, Im immigrants Disney. in Florida. It's yeah. Disney. It's, I mean, it's just the sense of, you know, it, like, what's the phrase? Like the, you know, it, like the cruelty is the point it's, it's just being cruel. Um, and that's something that I think, um, I think we don't maybe necessarily say enough actually that, you know, it like we can, we can be anti-cruelty. And I think that that's, there's a, there's a weird sense that because um, more right-wing uh, people have taken on cruelty as their mantle, that it's kind of like, uh, kind of like gauche to point it out that cruelty is bad um, or that it's just not, it's not like an acceptable political difference to be, to, to say that, well, you know, some people think it's all right to be cruel to people and other people think it's uh it's terrible. Like those aren't equal opinions, you know, like cruelty is just bad. And I think it's so strange that that in some ways feels like a radical political position now. Let's talk about what's coming up now. You probably can't tell us too much about the story that you've got coming out. Is it November that the, your next story is coming out in the 11th? December. Let me just have a look. Yes, December. The next uh, 11th Doctor box set. You've got the second story called All's Fair. Now, I just want to tell you briefly, we had Alfie come on and talk to us about this series before it actually started last year, before Geronimo mm. came out. And after hearing the second box set, I felt a sense of sadness knowing that this is it for Jacob Dudman's uh, Doctor. Uh, mm. And Valerie, I think is one of the best companions Big Finish has come up with for years. Um, I think she's so good in this role. So give us your thoughts about um, what Alfie's done with this box set so far. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, um, so I've actually been um, shadowing Alfie on this uh, series for a while now. Um, so I, I came in after uh, the second box set had already been recorded, but hadn't been totally edited and everything. Um, and so I, I got to to read the scripts and hear some stuff early on. And it was like knowing that everybody's in for such a treat with this. I mean, it is it's like a, such a lame thing to say that like, you're in for such a treat, but it really is like, if it's like big finish candy, you know, it's so just every bit of it is just so amazing. Um, yeah. I, I mean, there's something, I mean, it's like starting off from like Jake Dudman, right? I mean, I, I have no like um, particular, like, I guess you could say like ideological opinion on like what works with a, um, you know, with a, a recast or not. But the thing that I love about what Jake does in particular with it is the fact that he does an amazing Matt Smith impression, but he really does make the character of the Doctor his own. And I think Alfie also, um, 
you know, in, in sort of overseeing all of this, he writes 11 in a slightly different way than he does, um, you know, on the actual uh, Matt Smith series. You know, it's he still has the kind of the pattern, the fun and all that stuff. But it's a slightly more, I think, like a slightly more mature and less frenetic take on how Eleven works. And I think Jake performs it just to absolute perfection. He's insanely good at this. Um, and then, of course, um, Safia Ingar, they are just, I mean, uh, like, I really genuinely want there to be some sort of Valerie you know, series box set like Charlie Parlor and Scott, just because um, Valerie is the most interesting take on a companion in ages in any medium. I, I genuinely think she's one of my favorite characters, you know, any, any companion of any decade in any medium, including the show itself, you know, she is ridiculously good. Um, and I think Alfie, you know, cause he, his idea for it was doing it from a kind of more like cyberpunk perspective. Um, but I love that Valerie's not just you know, a kind of like, you know, hip, street smart, cybernetic, you know, oh, she's clever. She can work a machine. Like she's, she's so much more than that. And she's so much more vulnerable. And, um, you know, she's not just like quippy, but she's, she's real. She's, she's gritty in a, in an actual grounded way. Like when she and the doctor spar off sometimes, like it, it's not just like companion quipping with the doctor kind of stuff. It's like, these are real people who are having real arguments um, that, you know, are actually grounded. Um, yeah. And so, you know, these first two box sets, I mean, um, they've, I mean, like, you know, they've, they've been really great, right? They've been pretty incredible. Like, what, like what's your favorite one so far story-wise? I haven't got a particular favorite off the top of my head, but it's just mm. the development of, the character of Valerie and, and their relationship throughout is just, and, and Jake Dudman's just, he's, well, we always talk about John Colshaw and how good he is with the Brigadier, um, mm. getting him exactly right. But I think I, I'm, I'm almost tempted to sort of try somehow to twist Jake Dudman's arm to keep going with it because he's that mm. good. I, I love his characterization of the 11th Doctor so much that, even if we never got Matt Smith at big finish, then we'd still have we'd still have Jake, and it would be it would be just as good. So, um, it it just takes me like at the moment, my kids are at the age now where we where I'm I'm running through the the new series with them, and we're up to Matt Smith, and my my young daughter's coming up to me every day saying, "Can we watch some more Doctor Who? Can we watch some more Doctor Who?" And mm. that, no, they, go to your study, you say. No, I say, <laughs> all right, let's go, let's go. I don't need much of an excuse. Um. But they, but they just love the Eleventh Doctor, and they, even David Tennant, they loved him too. And uh, the first few episodes of the Eleventh Doctor, my daughter was saying, I still miss the Tenth Doctor, but there's no mention of the Tenth Doctor anymore. They just want to see more Eleventh, and uh, it's just a testament to Matt Smith's uh, portrayal, I guess. That, and just this character is such a well-rounded Doctor. This one. Um, so much to so much to enjoy with this doctor, and uh, we're we're getting he's, that he's with this set. He's a little boy and an old man at the same time. Yeah, he's he's kind of yeah. everything. He's kind of everything. And when you're talking about the maturity, well, this this box set or series is set towards the end of his time, isn't it? It's after the Pons left, so he's sort of getting a little bit more mature, and he's had some pretty heavy stuff happen to him. So um, I'm just looking. I'm glancing over at the cover. Of of your set that's coming out in December, and I'm just seeing Valerie on the front there. It's a with the look on her face. It's like, oh man, this is just going to break my heart. 
I can I can I can see it oh. now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I can tell you, um, I think uh, we're just so like I, like I said, I've been shadowing Alfie, so I don't have that much input. But um, there, you know, we're just finishing up the actual series itself, and it which is so strange to be seeing how it's all you know going to end. The fact that it's actually ending is you know for me right now it's ending, and that's such a bizarre feeling because um, it really feels like they could go on forever. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I like I got to tell you, like there is so much going on between now and the end of this. It's uh, there's a lot that's about to happen, and I think especially um, this next box set. It's um, I think what's weird is that mine is probably the like the lightest one of the three, and if you were to put that in any other box set, it would by by far be the most like emotional and grim and you know, like it's not, it's not a comedy, but compared to the other two stories, it's a bit of, you know, light, uh, fun. So it's so strange. Um, cause, ah, oh, there's, there's just, there's a lot going on here. And I think Alfie's got such a, a laser focus on making sure that we constantly kind of challenge the doctor and Valerie as characters, um, that they're not just, you know, going on, um, you know, what could be, you know, box set number 89, um, but that this feels like a distinct, you know, co coherent arc in a series that's actually, um, you know, that by the end of it, you really feel like you've been on this whole complete adventure. Um, so it's, you know, as sad as it is that it's ending, it's like, um, I, I have to say, like, I, I love the fact that it's ending with uh, this sort of perfect bite-sized full morsel, you know, it's, it's complete. Um, and that's something really amazing. But at the same time, if they want to do another 17 Valerie 11 box sets, I'm totally happy with that. Did you get to go to the recording for this one? Um, no, because um, it was recorded like oh, the lockdown. day before. Uh, no, not lockdown. It was recorded oh, okay. um, back in February, actually. But it was it was uh, the day before uh, Gallifrey One, which I, I mentioned I was uh, uh, going off to see. And yeah, and weirdly, Alfie also went to Galley One, um, but he he went from the recording of this uh, of this story, went straight from the recording to the airport, right to the um, to the convention, and stayed up for like twelve hours chatting to people without like a, a beat, without a without a nap, um, because he's insane like that. He's uh, young. Yeah. Oh man, but he still has like five times more energy than I do. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's basically. There's a lot to look forward to. So uh, I was just wondering, did did um? I mean, so Alfie would have been script editing and doing a lot, some notes and suggestions along the way. Did um uh, Helen Goldman directed? So did she have any notes for you as well, or have any questions, or did you just hand the complete script to her and she just went for it? Yeah, so um, the way it works is the the director is very much at the you know at the end stage. So it's not like um, the director comes in with some notes uh, for the you know third draft of the script or whatever. Um, but I know that um, Helen is amazing. Alfie was really keen to to get her in for the set um, because she um, I haven't met her, but apparently she's just the best with actors. Um, and I mean I. Like I can definitely say, you know, you can hear um, throughout this series just how much this is like an actor's uh, an actor's box set. You know, it's um, I think she just has a real sense of um, how to get these 
um, like the rhythm of scenes and things like that, things that um, you could easily let slide, but, you know, she and the others, like, I don't know, it's, there's a sense of real like pace to it um, that really helps. This is all very like writerly stuff that I care about. I don't know if anybody else would ever notice this stuff, but like the, the rhythm of the audio is like, it really matters. No, we talk we, about that often. We quote it all the time yeah. and, and, and what different directors do in terms of how they pace and, and what they emphasize. And yeah, we, mm. we, we, we do do it. We're a bit sad. We do analyze that sort of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so if you haven't been to the recording, I'm assuming you haven't heard any of it yet. Um, no, I haven't heard any of mine yet. Um, but I've heard a bit of, um, Alfie's and I know just how much that's going to break people's hearts. Um, but yeah, weirdly, I, I have a kind of like, I guess like a superpower, which is I'm never able to make it to any big finished recording. I haven't been to, I've, I've got, uh, three stories, uh, that are, have come out or are coming out and it's still never managed to make it to one. There's always something else going on. Um, you need some I'm kryptonite for that superpower. It. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but I'm, I'm hoping that um, Alfie's going to be able to sneak me into the recording for the the last box set, which should be happening soon. Um, cool. So that'll be really exciting. So how does that feel? You've gone from short trips to to full cast. How's that? Uh, how's that feel for you? Yeah, it's a very different um, way of writing, right? Um, I mean, obviously it is. It's a completely different like medium, basically. But like you know, it's uh, it, it emphasizes different things, like full cast i think people don't necessarily realize um even if you know how hard it is to get information to get scenes moving um all in dialogue with no actual prose or anything to help you along obviously we know intellectually that that's hard but actually having to sit down with a script and go okay i have no time for this scene but i you know i, I need the scene to keep going on to have this information in it to have a joke in there to move it to the next bit, like to get the pacing right is so incredibly difficult. Um, but there's something so freeing about doing it as a full cast audio at the same time. Um, the fact that, you know, you can have all kinds of different sound effects and um, you can move the characters around a lot more. Um, yeah. So I think it, I'm, I'm lucky that I think um, writing my first cast audio my first full cast audio um, happened after I'd been doing a lot of work already with Alfie reading over scripts and, you know, looking through how a script turns into a proper full cast audio. Um, because it, you know, even knowing all of that, even having, you know, done it as an observer, it's like actually having to write it out and, and turn it into a thing. Um, it's really hard. Um, but it's also super fulfilling. Like I'm, I'm so proud of this script. Um, and I mean, it's, it's got, a lot of surprises in it um because you know it's it's been announced that it's um got Rowana from uh the second box set the yearn um coming back um who is just um fantastic and there's i mean there's like like shouldn't say this but like in the first like few minutes like in the pre-titles there's um not like a twist but there's a there's a thing that happens that completely turns the story on its head which was basically the whole idea for the story that we haven't even hinted at and it's um i'm so excited to see so many people get really angry at me so sounds like you're almost looking forward to it <laughs> yeah i think um you know there's there's nothing better than putting out a doctor who story that makes people um you know have opinions like i think if you put out a story and nobody really thinks about it much either way you know it's still enjoyable but if you can put out something that either makes them very angry or very happy 
that's beautiful. Divine. Excellent. You, have you got anything else with the boil at the moment that you can talk about or not really? Not that I can talk about. There's something I'm, I'm working on now that should get um, announced soonish, um, and that'll be really exciting. Um, Excellent. Yeah, Excellent. So with aspiring writers uh, who want to get into Doctor Who writing, particularly Big Finish Audio, might be might be trying for the however manyth time to uh, to win the Paul Sprague competition. What would your advice be to that person? Yeah, so my advice is um, definitely actually apply to those competitions when they come up. Um, I think I, like I have a lot of friends who sort of sit around going, you know, I don't know if my idea is good enough or, you know, I'd really love to do this. I'd love to win it. But like, you know, can I be bothered to put together this little outline? Um, and I think uh, I've actually found it, you know, actually having to write the outline first, you know, even before you decide if you're going to enter it, that's actually really useful. Um, I use that all the time now, actually, like a lot of um, writers will just sort of sit down and start writing something, um, but actually having to outline it, which you have to do for approval reasons um, is, you know, beautiful. And actually it, re it really helps you see what's uh, going on with your story and what you can do to improve it and all of that. Um, so I think for first time writers, especially um, having to actually churn out an outline and and make it feel like oh this is something i'd really want to hear um that's a really good first step to making sure um that you actually know what it takes to be a proper doctor who writer um i think also just um i've, I've mentioned this elsewhere but just the fact that i think stories that win the paul sprag competition tend to be things that um are really only stories that you could tell and i think that that doesn't just mean it has to be autobiographical. It doesn't just mean it has to, um, you know, completely break the mold in any sort of way. You can do a kind of, um, like my friend uh, Ben Ted's, um, who won with his story, which was much more of a comedy twelve story. But it was it's such a it's such a Ben story, and like you know, knowing him now, it's like well, obviously Ben Ted's wrote that. You know, that's the kind of story that tends to win. You know, you you really get stories that are, you know, maybe it's super funny or super dark or it covers a topic that you care about that nobody else does. Or there's a historical period you really love or something. You know, there's, it's, it's basically like if you're you have to think about um, as a writer, if you're in the position of, um, you know, the short trips uh, producer, you know, and you're reading through literally like a thousand applications like what is going to stand out? And I don't think you have to feel daunted by that. You have to just think, you know, what what do I have that really feels like a really exciting one sentence idea, like a like a crisp, very different kind of story. And that's all they really need. And those are the ones that uh, tend to really sing. Um, but then I think the other bigger piece of advice I'd also give people is um, something that I didn't follow, which is don't kind of wait for people to notice you. That's the other thing um, that I think is really important because applying to competitions and stuff is really, really useful. Um, but I think it tends to be that um, if you want to be a writer, you should just be a writer, honestly. You should just start writing stuff, even if it's not paid yet, um, or you find other ways to get paid for your writing. You apply to other you know, literary journals and things like that um, because you know, there really isn't any point waiting for, you know, Nick Briggs or whoever to kind of sit up and go, oh, that that person had a very good tweet or that person wrote some really good Doctor Who fan fiction. You know, maybe I'll give them a shot. It's like, you know, 
like not saying that you shouldn't do that kind of stuff like like making your amazing fan fiction like loads of people do it but it's like don't just wait for people to notice you. You have to find other ways to to be a writer before people sort of hand you the opportunity. Um, and that's uh, something that I really should have done because my career would have gone a lot faster. <laughs> um, but, you know, it is nice when people notice you, but also um, you have to just prove yourself. No one's going to notice you unless you prove yourself first. And you have to prove yourself in ways that aren't just people handing you the opportunity. You know, you have to really like it's a bit of a hustle culture, a bit of advice, but like you actually have to go out there and and find ways to to practice your writing. Um, yeah. Excellent. Great advice. Thank you very much. So, um, Max, thank you very much for um, taking some time to have a chat with us. Uh, really appreciate that. Um, I suspect that uh, we may be seeing a lot more of your name over the last over the next few years. So thank you. I can only hope. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. From Big Finish Productions. Oh, it's not multiple stories. It's the one story of a travelling man and his new best friend. This is the tale of Doctor Who. The 11th Doctor Chronicles. All of time and space. If we're going to get to the Dowager's Bezel Tub, we need to grab onto the side of it as it passes. You still haven't told me what Bezel Tub is or why we need well, it. Well, it's nothing to do with a tube. Oh, travelling with you does wonders for my vocabulary. Hopefully for your upper body strength too. How much stronger do you need... Jump! Yeah. I'm talking to puppets. The puppets are talking to me. There isn't anyone in that booth, is there? Well, there's a crocodile, but he's sleeping. <sighs> oh, hello. Hello, your rodent ship. I'm it's the dog. not a crate of intelligent mice. Energy signatures like this are old news to a boy from the Kasturberus neighbourhood. Doctor, they could be here at any moment. Can you get to the point yourself, or shall I order you a cap? Uh, try not to dwell on that thought. Uh, because it's utterly petrifying? Because, if that happens, it's goodbye from you, and goodbye from me. The way I see it, it's only a couple. Rowanna! Valerie! On the contrary, we have to go. All of us, now. Oh, take my hand. Head for ops. There's half a dozen traps between there and here. Make them run the gauntlet. Costa, I've got you. Come on! Run! It's coming in very fast and very close. Thought it might be. It's good to have your eyes to confirm it. Let's hope it's not too late. Here it comes! No! Big finish. For the love of stories. Well? You know why I'm here. I'm still looking for this doctor. Hmm. No, no, I've not seen him. Hmm. No. No. So, you can leave. Hello, I'm Bonnie Langford, and this is The Sirens of Audio. Well, I just had to throw in... I can't throw in the um, trailer for the 11th Doctor box set that Max is writing for, but I'll throw, the trailer's there for the last one because I think it's an absolutely sensational series of stories i'm very sad as i said that it's coming to an end but things come to an end philip yep you didn't let me answer my favorite one of the last box set can i just say you cut me off oh did i cut you off you did but that's okay oh, I'm, so I, I'm, I'm so I was, sorry i'm no, so no, sorry that's okay i was gonna say james goss's curiosity shop right my favorite so far because that was a great little story anyhow okay but james goss is usually good it is usually yeah can't really go wrong with when you see his name. Now, the last thing we have to do for this episode is to talk about something that we've been listening to. Uh, Can I go first? It will, is it your turn? 
Hang on, where's my list? Actually, my list says it is. So, where you go, Philip. Okay. Um, I'm not going to recommend an audio this time. I'm actually going to recommend something I've been watching. Oh, that's a bit naughty. I know. But anyhow, uh, so it's on Netflix called Jury Duty, Mm -hmm. um, which I'm not sure whether whether you've heard about it or not. It is a, what do you call it, comedy, docudrama? It's a a court. Is it a mockumentary? No, it's not even that. It is a entire so it's a jury it's a court case in America. The entire jury the entire court case are all actors except for one person who believes it's real. Okay. <laughs> and so he believes he's filming a documentary about serving on a jury and yeah. he's unaware that every other person is an actor. And so he actually thinks he's in the middle of a court case. Right. With all these unusual people and these strange things keep happening all around him. Yeah. And it's all about how he reacts to bizarre situations and a bizarre case and just how he handles what happens. Right. It is it is hilarious. Like it is Sounds so bizarre. It is. It is so funny in terms of what's going on, but it is just wonderful to see how does a human being behave. And so it's it's it is scripted, but it's all scripted in terms of if this happens, do this. If this happens, do this. And so the cast, you know, there's a time where he, he's, he's put into lockdown because there's a COVID scare. And so he's caught in a hotel room for the whole day. But everyone else has gone out to rehearse for the next day's script. And he's mm. caught in his room thinking he's in a COVID lockdown. Um, and so bizarre things happen. So, yeah, it is really well worth watching because it all feeds off him. So, you know, the first day is all about jury selection and, you know, he's chatting with this juror who he thinks is a real person who wants to get off the case. Mm. And he gets asked the question, oh, how, you know, how do you get out of a case? And he talks about an episode of a comedy show he watched where the guy just said he was racist. Mm. And so that's how he got off. And then, you know, and then, you know, five minutes later, you're in the courtroom, the guy's up trying to get out of courtroom and the judge is saying, no, that's not good enough reason. You know, can you give me another reason why you can get off? And he says, oh, well, I'm a racist. And, you know, and of course, he just keeps feeding off things. It is really a brilliant show. Um, it's got the actor, is it James Masters? Um, from what, from Hairs- Torchwood? No, no, sorry, I've got the wrong actor now. Uh, that's dreadful. The, and from Hairspray and from Enchanted. Um, Musicals. I yeah, I know. I can't think of his name is now. But anyhow, he, he's actually playing himself. As, a, as, as this actor who's been called in. And, and so, you know, he talks about all his movies and the notebook and things. He plays an obnoxious version of himself. But it is just so funny watching this person not quite, you know, realising that there's weird things happening around him, but not cottling on to the fact that it's just fake. And, and you know, every time he started to cotton on, they'd sit through two or three hours of testimony and, you know, bore them to death again. And then, so, yeah, it's really, really worth watching. It's eight episodes, a lot of fun, yeah. Can't recommend it high enough. You want a good laugh, but also just to, to watch someone in it be very human and deal with strange people and to have a real heart. Um, it's worth watching. Hmm. What I'm about you, Dwayne? What are you going to recommend? I am going to recommend a Big Finish main range story that I've been listening to today, um, just to do a bit of research for a forthcoming episode. And that is the Fifth Doctor story. Well, is it the Fifth Doctor story? Or is it the First Doctor story, The Secret History? So written oh, by excellent. Eddie Robson. Yep. It's number 200 in the main range. It's the third in a three-part trilogy where someone has been taking a future doctor and putting him in an earlier doctor's body. So 
uh, I think the first one was the seventh Doctor becoming the third Doctor. So he teamed up with Joe Grant. It all sounds weird just to say out loud, but it all makes sense when you listen to it. The second one was the sixth Doctor uh, teaming up with Jamie and Zoe um, as the second Doctor. And the, 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 the secret history is the fifth Doctor teaming up with Stephen and Vicky. So this is the very this is the one and only appearance of Stephen and Vicky in the main range. Um, so that's interesting for that fact alone. Um, I guess I can spoil it now, but the person behind it all is the meddling monk. Uh, but how it all works and what all the resolution is, is, is still a very fascinating journey, fascinating story. Mm. And yeah, mostly a, a historical. So a similar kind of concept to the fifth doctor box sets from last year, 40. So the, 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 the fifth doctor was sent up and down his own timeline within that incarnation. So it was an older Fifth Doctor going back to a younger Fifth Doctor. Similar kind of thing, except he's going back whole incarnations in this uh, trilogy. So, yeah, really interesting stuff. And I, I think by this stage, I think by this stage, we'd already met the Graham Garden meddling monk in the Eighth Doctor Lucy Miller series. So, uh, so this was the second appearance of the meddling monk for Big Finish, uh, played by Graham Garden. So, yeah, that's what I've been listening to today, and I highly recommend it. Yeah, it's brilliant. Mm. That'll do us for today. Um, it's been great to have your company, Philip. And as always, yours too, Dwayne. And can I just say one more time, I apologise for cutting you off. I didn't mean it. <laughs> really doesn't matter. But I'm still sorry anyway. Oh, gee, thanks. All right, no, I'm not. Okay, thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We'll catch you all next time. Bye, everyone. This has been the Science of Audio episode 155, Short Trippin' Across the Universe, with our guests Max Koshevsky and your hosts Philip Edney and Dwayne Bunny. Original theme music composed by Joe Kramer. Our website is sirensofaudio.com. Comment below to let us know what you thought of the episode or contact us via email at sirensofaudio at gmail.com or any one of our socials. Thanks for listening, audiophiles. We'll hear you next time.